I'm going to give you a brief example before we push into the word. But I think it's one that many of you will identify with. Especially as parents, there's that time in your life when you need to begin to decide, can the kids get along if we leave the house? It's that judgment period of do we need to get a babysitter or can they make it uh, without killing each other or burning the house down? Which I think when I was a kid, that was a very old age for us uh, because we would have killed one another or burned the house down. <laughs> but uh, w- there's, it's, it's a different challenge when you're trying to think, can the kids get along with us not there, than it is... Uh, can we bring a babysitter in? In other words, what, what is babysitter age? What is that? How old? 13? 13? That's pretty good? Okay, good. I'm getting multiple nods, so we're, we're okay. Um, you know, you could bring a 13-year-old in from the outside when you may not be able to use your own 13-year-old. And I think you know what I mean. Because... It's just like if you brought a pastor in from out of town, he'd be a professional. When you bring a 13-year-old babysitter in from the outside, they're, they're not enmeshed in the dynamics of the home. It's a, um, a sibling is never accepted in their home sort of adage. Uh, and so it's especially difficult to begin to figure out when can the oldest sibling shepherd or provide oversight for the house because there's all that other stuff that's at work that's not present if you just bring in uh, a babysitter from from out of the home. When I was younger, my parents tried to do this. Maybe they just did it once. I only have one recollection of this having ever happened. And this might be why my brother was assigned as the guy in charge and I'll say from the outset, I'm sure, I'm sure I was to blame for whatever happened. I was the teaser in the, in the circle. There were three of us, and I was the teaser. Um, but I, I do, my only memory is, and this is an embarrassing memory. I mean, I wish it was better than this. It's pretty lame, but at least you know I'm not lying. My only memory of this kind of night was I was eventually, I had my arms outstretched, and I was holding loaves of bread, like as weights. My brother made me just stand there and hold loaves of bread. And I had to do it in front of our front door, like a glass door, because all my friends could come by and laugh. And then I had to kiss my sister. And that was, that's how that one time went. It was, it was terrible. Uh, it was a terrible experience. And, and this, I want to ask you this morning, this morning is going to have a little bit to do with um, who has the Lord uh, placed you over? Maybe not in a formal way, but uh, who has the Lord entrusted to you in all various sorts of ways? And I want to just encourage you to be challenged, as we, especially as we approach the Lord's table this morning, um, with uh, the question of, am I, am I being responsible with the authority or the influence that he's given me? Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to your word and as we walk towards this table. Lord, I pray you would humble our hearts and prepare us. Lord, and, and, and the humility that you always bring is, is, is still in the light of your grace, Lord. So uh, I pray, Lord, as you do convict us uh, to be more like yourself, Lord, you, we would hold on to the confidence that you are doing the work. And I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, we're picking up where we left off last week, uh, and we're picking up at a question. Uh, Peter asks in verse 41 of chapter 12, and I'll give you a little background, but he says, he just asks the Lord, Lord, are you talking to us, the disciples, or is what you're saying for everybody? And he's asking that question because what Jesus had just shared, he had just shared a parable, and the parable was of um, servants who would be ready for the return of their master. That was the parable last week. He said it would be good for uh, servants who, uh, if their master's gone, if they would have a spirit of alertness to be on the lookout for the return of their master. He says that would be really good, that as soon as the master would knock, that they would be there to receive him. It would be those sorts of servants would be well blessed by the Lord. To which Peter begins to ask, when you say servant, are you speaking of the disciples or are you speaking of everybody? And I think he's confused as to who Jesus is talking to because it's confusing as to who Jesus is talking to. I'm confused as to who he's talking to. If you just turn back the page to 12 verse 1, this whole message begins with Jesus addressing a crowd of thousands of people. And then in 12, so he's teaching that crowd. Uh, though, um, as he's teaching that crowd, it says he begins to speak to the disciples in the first verse. So like, there's a big crowd he's teaching, but now he's talking to the disciples. And then in verse 13, it says someone in the crowd, and this one man stands up and speaks. And in 14, Jesus replies to him only, man who appointed me judge. And then in 15, it says, then he said to them, so who's them? It's at least the disciples, but I think it's more than the disciples. I think he's now turning back to the crowd and shares this parable. Because in 22, it says, then he, Jesus said to the disciples. And then a little bit later, in uh, the 32nd verse, he says, don't be afraid, little flock. And I've never heard him say little flock to his disciples. It makes me think that somewhere as he's talking to his disciples about not worrying, his voice again is, uh, again begins to just kind of address the whole crowd, and he's back to the little flock. And I can imagine if I ask Peter going, is he talking to me? Is he talking to us? Is he talking to all of us? What's, what's happening here? To whom does this teaching apply is Peter's question. And this is the beginning of the answer that Christ gives. Verse 42. I'll read 42 through 46. Then the Lord answered, By the way, he answers with another parable. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him to the place with the unbelievers. So Peter says, Lord, who are you talking to, us or everybody? And Jesus responds with this parable, this parable 
of the head steward, of the manager of the home. That's, that's the image that's being given. It's, he kind of continues with the master-servant imagery, but he readjusts it now to this, this head steward or the manager. And he says it's like a master who assigns to the manager of his household the task of what? It says the task of, and it's quite odd, I think, The master puts him in charge to give them their food allowance at the proper time. That's what this head manager is supposed to do. He's responsible for the food allowance. Now, I would have to imagine, I think you would agree with this, that um, being placed in charge probably entails more than simply being responsible for the food allowance. I think there's other things that are implied. In fact, a little later, you actually do see that. You see when the, uh, the head steward thinks to himself, remember that's another warning, nothing good ever comes of that. He thinks to himself, oh, my master's gone. And he begins to beat his men servants and maidservants and eat, drink, and get drunk. The implication there is, is that he does have more authority than simply like doling out food. But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says that his job is to allot the food allowance at the proper time. That's his job, is to feed the other servants. That's the theme of the care that the Lord's assigning. You can imagine if the Lord's saying there, he, he's, he's saying to the head manager, I'm giving you this responsibility, but the theme or the goal or the mission of this responsibility, he's saying to the the head servant, is so that the servants are appropriately fed. He might have said it this way, your stewardship should be seen primarily through the way you provide provision for the other servants. Now, I think that's an unnatural way to write this account. I think that's unexpected. Um, I, I, would have, I would have said it this way if it was me. I'm not saying if I was the Lord. I'm saying if I was just saying this parable. I would have said something like, uh, your job is to manage the household. That is a more uh, common way of saying it. Make sure the work is done. I'm leaving. If, if I was a Lord and I had many vassals, or servants, right? I would say, I'm leaving Make sure to my head steward, make sure you care for the estate, or make sure that the work is done, or make sure that things are kept in good order. That's the kind of thing. And I would have left feed the servants as an implied task. Why is feed the servants the task and manage the household the implied task? It seems to me to be in reverse, Or it seems to me that the number one assignment for this servant is to make sure that the servants are well fed. I think if this were not the Messiah, we would critique this as either not well said or unwise. I mean, really, what lord? What lord of any estate? And we don't. You don't. I don't think you know lords. I don't know any lords, but I'm just imagining what lord of any estate would go away and say, your number one goal is to make sure my servants are well fed. That seems like I would have 30 other number one goals. 
And yeah, yeah, make sure they're fed. Don't, like, they need to do work. They need to be fed. But what, what Lord says that? What business? Okay, you, can, you don't know Lords, but you know businesses. What business, honestly, I'm not, maybe they say this, but you know what I'm saying. What business honestly thinks that the number one purpose of the business is to well-feed their employees? The, the business of business is business. That's the mission of a business. The number one purpose of a business is the business, not the employees. The employees serve the business. If they don't serve the business, they're fired or let go. A business is there for the, it's what, the number one goal of a business or an organization is the mission of that organization. It's, it's, it's the product. It's what the business is trying to do. If it was, maybe it's even the customer, but it's not the employee. Despite what the sign says when you walk in to your cubicle. Apparently, in this case, the master seems unconcerned with the work of the home. doesn't seem like the, the master, the lord of this estate, Jesus in this case, is overly concerned with um, the work that needs to get done. What he's concerned with is the nourishment of his, of his servants. And I want us to ask three questions this morning about this. I want to, we're going to spend some time here as we think about this. I want to, these are the three questions that we're going to ask about this image. This image of the master saying to his head servant, I want you to make sure they're well fed. This is the first question. Is this image that's being expressed here in the parable, is it unique or is it seen elsewhere in Scripture? In other words, am I making too much of this or not? Number two, what does it mean in the parable to feed for the head steward to make sure that they're fed? That's the second question I want us to ask. And the third question that we're going to ask is, what does this teaching mean for those who are just regular old servants? Right? So I, we can imagine pretty quickly that Peter, Peter asked the question, is this for us or for everybody? And certainly it sounds like Jesus starts at the top. I mean, the parable's talking about a head servant. I mean, so at least in Peter's ears, it's certainly for Peter. What is it for the least in the household? Okay, so question one. Is this image expressed elsewhere? And this is a quick survey, okay? I want you to just kind of put your mind in a loose gear and just, we're going to survey the scripture and look for images. So I encourage you to even think freely of your own, of other images. But I'll, I'll go to a few anchor points, I think. I think the single best uh, narrative reference that this parable talks to is the life of Joseph. Well, we spent a lot of time on Joseph in December or the summer. If you think of it, right, first of all, can you imagine of a better example of a head steward than Joseph? Everywhere he goes, he becomes the manager of whatever he's doing, the manager of Potiphar's household, the manager of the prison, the manager of Egypt. And why, by the way, why is he made the manager of Egypt? For what's the purpose? Is it not to feed? Is that not the teaching that the story tells? is the whole reason that the Lord elevates Joseph to that position is so that all of Egypt and the surrounding area does not starve. And we can say, we, we know this, that Joseph is a type of Christ, that what Joseph does in his story starts to point 
over the Bible to what Jesus is going to do. But the Lord elevates Joseph to a position where through his administration, many people beneath him are fed, okay? That is the first one, and I think that's an important one. Uh, Other ones that you'll see, the 40 years in the desert. What does the Lord do in 40 years in the desert for his people? He gives them manna. Every day they wake up and they walk outside and there's manna. Every single day there's manna. There's manna, except the day before the Sabbath, there's two days of manna so that they don't have to go gather Sabbath on the, or gather manna on the Sabbath. For 40 years, imagine for your lifetime, you would grow up knowing that the Lord provides for you. That the most profound, so profound that it could almost be mundane at the same time because it's happening every day, that you would just come to know that the Lord is responsible and concerned for your nourishment. It's not a small thing. There's not a whole lot of things they put in the Ark of the Covenant of God, and a jar of manna was one of them. It ranks up there with the Ten Commandments and the staff of Moses. This notion of the Lord saying, I want you to remember that I fed you. That's another one. In the New Testament, I think another example is the feeding of the 5,000. It's probably one of the most popular miracles that the Lord has done, one of the most notable miracles that he's done. And there's this situation that people have come out kind of to a remote location to receive the Lord's teaching. As he's teaching them, it's getting late, and the disciples say, we need to let them go home. That's their sense of responsibility, is release them to go home so they can be nourished, to which Jesus says, how about you do it? They're here, let's feed them here. And there is this spirit of responsibility of the Lord over feeding those who are following him. That's another one. I, I, I think um, a large one that crosses all of Scripture that we, we, we shouldn't miss is the notion of a shepherd and a flock. After all, doesn't this steward sound like a shepherd? So the, the imagery, I mean, he's telling the story of a master who makes a head manager over a household. But the imagery translates perfectly over to a shepherd and a flock. So you have a head manager whose goal is to feed the servants. Is that not the job of a shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This nourishment. And if you think of yourself as a sheep, you're being led to green pastures and you're being led to still waters. The Lord is a shepherd. So he's saying to the head manager, I'm assigning you the role of pastoring well, right? Shepherd's pastor. It's a pastoral role. Care, nourish those who are beneath you, who have entrusted to your care. That's what's happening there. And he's saying this to Peter, which, by the way, we should not miss the mark that, you know, Peter goes on to deny Christ three times, and Christ is crucified, and he's resurrected, and one day he meets Peter again, and they're at the meeting, and they're being reunited, and in this reunited, the Lord is slowly kind of lifting Peter out of his, out of his guilt, right? And how does that happen? How does that sound? It sounds like this, Peter, do you love me? To which Peter says, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know what? You know I do. Care for my sheep. And again, the third time he says, Peter, do you love me? To which Peter gets offended. You know I love you, Lord. And he says, feed my sheep. There's this, this spirit of, of pastoral spirit that the Lord's trying to imprint 
on the life of Peter. By the way, later on, Peter's going to write a letter to the church. He's going to write it, and at the end, in 1 Peter 5, he's going to say, and by the way, to pastors, to overseers, whom the Lord has entrusted this flock to your care, nurture them and care for them. He says, do it willingly, not out of obligation. Don't do it for greed or for selfish purposes. Do it out of a heart for the Lord. It seems like Peter got it. And then I think, finally, this question of, is the image expressed anywhere else in the word? I cannot help but think of the Lord's Supper. That the Lord would would choose to represent his presence in our life through nourishment. That the Lord would take it upon himself to say that you need to regularly gather and feed from me, that I, through my life given, through my death and resurrection, that I am, I am your nourishment. I mean, the Thanksgiving feast at some levels wasn't Thursday, it's today for the church. So this is not a lonely image. This image where, like, fundamentally we should think about stewardship of others from the perspective of feeding them, of nourishing them. You know, when we're placed in positions of authority or given responsibility or influence of others, we have a lot of things we can think about. Of, uh, you know, my background is, is mission-oriented, not nourish-oriented. We have different ways to think about this, but the Lord turns it all and says, think of it as though you're feeding Which raises this question, what does it mean to feed? And simply put, I would say, what it means to feed spiritually is to care or nurture for someone spiritually, just as this meal does. When we, when we share in the Lord's Supper, this is why, by the way, it doesn't need to be a whole meal. It's because the food is representative of spiritual nourishment, that you take this and you are reminded that Jesus Christ is gave his life for you. And you take this and you are reminded that there is a new promise, a new covenant that you claim before the Lord. That that's what's represented here. And so there's a sense of, it can be a spiritual feast even though it's a cracker. The word is nourishment. I think in the parable, the notion as it descends towards Peter, and you know, I I understand that the teaching's coming from the top, so it's hitting Peter and the disciples, and it eventually lands on myself and Terry and the next guy. Like I understand how it's trickling down, but the idea of feeding is make sure that the flock is nourished with the word. Make sure that they know God's truth in a true way, that it's not taught correctly and then applied incorrectly, but it's taught and applied in a biblical way. That, that's the heart of what it means to feed somebody with the word. And even Jesus says as much when he's being tempted by Satan. Come on, I know you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. To which he says, man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. So what does this mean for the regular servant? You know, so if you're not Peter and you're not the disciples and you're not a bishop or 
a formal pastor, what does this mean for you? I would say this. I would say be slow to claim that all your whole job is just to eat. If you have the title mom or dad, this preaches. Has God not entrusted people to your care? Are they your children, really? Or are they God's children entrusted to your care? At the birth, do you not say praise the Lord? Do you not pray to the Lord for a child? Do you not thank the Lord when you receive a child? Do you not recognize the scriptures that talk about how the Lord, not you, was there at conception? I mean, how intimately the Lord was there, how he knit that child together. Is it not the Lord's child? Do you not raise the child to send the child out? Why? Because you know intuitively that God has entrusted this child to you, but then one day you turn the child back over to the Lord and to the world and to life. How are you feeding that child spiritually? Let me ask you this. Is there anyone in your life that you feel has been spiritually entrusted to you? I want to avoid labels like mentor or teacher because they're too formal. I just want, to just, I want you to think. I want you to think kind of across the spectrum of your life and say, who are those people whom the Lord has brought to you, who you, you exercise some level of spiritual influence over, some kind of, some kind of respectability that in some ways you, the Lord has said, hey, they're, they're a learner under you. Like if you, when you speak, they might receive. So be careful how you speak because they're listening. And so use care. I imagine you are not going to be long in the faith without the Lord bringing somebody like that. I imagine if you can't find that person, there's a good chance you're not looking for that person. Or maybe you're like at the total bottom rung. And then I would say, well, maybe you just need to feed for now. But that's not where you want to end up. I know this means Peter. And I know this means the disciples. And I know this means pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers. I know all of that. I'm just not sure it doesn't mean you. And in fact, the word goes on to insist it, does, it, it means everybody. Look at 47 and 48. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does these things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now, I, I want to clear a few things up. This is not talking about purgatory. It's not talking about levels of hell. You know, there's one guy who knows. and It's not talking about that. There's a clear teaching the Lord's trying to teach in accordance with this parable. This is a teaching of proportionality. What the Lord is saying is, is to, whom, to those people who receive much grace from the Lord, there's a great expectation that a child who knows the rules and doesn't follow the rules is guilty of a greater crime than a child who doesn't know the rules and does the same thing. Likewise, to a people in the Lord who know the truth of God and yet do not do the things required by the Lord, they are to be judged even with more scrutiny than those who don't know the word of God. 
And so what, what happens is Peter begins with saying, Lord, is this for me or for everybody? And the Lord starts at the top and says, well, it's certainly for you, Peter. It's begin to think of your life as who are you nourishing? Uh, what's the perspective on that? And he ends by saying, and by the way, this teaching is applicable based upon the amount of grace you have received. So how long have you been in the faith? Just a few days, a few years. Has more of your life been Christian than not Christian? Do you think of that? Those of you who, like myself, have a boring testimony because I can't really remember when I was not a believer because I was marinated in the faith. What do you think the Lord's expectation is? You know, sometimes I would refer to my testimony as boring because I wasn't, you know, addicted to this or that or I never got chased by the cops. And it sounded cool to me when I was in youth and I'd hear somebody who was the worst sort of person. And, you know, I wanted that exciting testimony. But I had a boring testimony. Well, I'll spice up your boring testimony for you, by the way. To whom much is given, much is required. Like maybe it's boring because you've received all this grace and you have lived just feeding. Does the Lord waste that? Was it just squandered? And I'm not saying that you should be a missionary, though maybe, you, maybe the Lord would do that. And I'm not saying that you should be a pastor. I mean, there's calling and there's gifting and all of these things come in. But there is a sense of owning, owning what the Lord has done for us. Let me ask it this way. The Lord's Supper, is this the fifth time you're taking the Lord's Supper or is it the 500th time? Or is it the 5,000th time? There is a challenge that comes with the blessing of coming here for the 500th time. When you come here, the, the, the blessing that comes here is, I know, like all my life, the Lord regularly says to me, I'm with you, I died for you, I forgive you. I'll be here a month later to remind you that I'm with you and I died for you and I'll forgive you. I have never not been with you. I have always died for you and I will always forgive you. Like some of us have grown up with the repetition of that hymn in our lives. Grace, 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 grace. I just wanted to to be met with a challenge of you're here for the 500th time. How long must I feed you? When will you begin to feed others? This is the challenge this morning. I pray it upon you as we approach the Lord's table in confidence and in conviction that he feeds us for a purpose. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we we praise you and we worship you for all grace that is received. Father, and I proclaim it as a mystery to me and to many here as to why you show up on the first day of someone, one person's life and in the 55th year of another person's life, Lord. Father, we don't know the deepness of your ways and your purposes. 
but we do recognize grace when it comes. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for having shown yourself to us. Father, we thank you that even before our first day, your son hung on the cross, that he died for our sins, that through the testimony of your word and the proclamation of your story from generation to generation, we have heard that Christ died for us. And we have hope through his resurrection that through faith we will one day be with you. Lord, and that is grace. So Father, as we approach your table, Lord, cleanse our heart. Help us to see you rightly, Lord. Give us clarity as to what your spirit has to say. Father, how can we not want to come here and be different? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.